0: Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church, and we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open His Word together and examine His incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together.
1: In the book of Samuel, uh, they're striking because there's events that transpire, and there's not really divine commentary given on them. You know what I mean? It's just, here's some stuff that happened. Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Was it a eh, kind of thing? You've got to sort of weigh that out, uh, comparing with the rest of Scripture and so forth. Um, so we're not going to cover everything. There are things during this wilderness period that, in, in my judgment, that David does that are not the right choices or the best choices or the most godly choices or whatever but I think the things we're going to observe, things that he did do, whenever you uh, compare it to the rest of the teachings of Scripture, they are thing- lessons that he learned and lessons that he teaches us about how we can grow up in the wilderness as we live in this world. So First Samuel chapter 23, let's go ahead and uh, read a little bit here. So Saul is chasing David down and uh, trying to kill. Oh, actually, I want to read this quote uh, just to kind of tie off this notion of how important the wilderness. Someone wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. And He shouts to us in our pains. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pains. Of course, the writer being metaphoric in all of this, and the point being, that the wilderness times are the times whenever we can, if we'll allow it to, hear God most clearly, understand God most clearly, be drawn into Him more deeply, than we ever have before. so many of God's people, that's been the case. And it can be for us if we'll go through the wilderness in the right way. All right, so let's go ahead and get into it. 1 Samuel chapter 23. David's on the run and everything. What are you going to do, David? How are you going to deal with this? Verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus, David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. Let's pause right here and just observe the first lesson that we need to learn in the wilderness that we learn alongside David. Your own counsel is faulty. Your perspective, your ideas, your notions about how to live life are faulty. They may not always be wrong, but they're faulty. They're not enough for sure. And sometimes they are just flat wrong. Wisdom is found by inquiring of the Lord. Wisdom is found by inquiring of the Lord. Uh, Let's pause for a second. I'd like you to notice in what we just read, what were some other options David could have had besides inquiring of the Lord? This is how he decides to go out, fight the Philistines, do the stuff that he does. But look in the text. What were some other options, some other sources of wisdom or some other uh, uh, counsel he had available to him that he could have sought out to make his decisions about what to do or not do? Go ahead. Yeah. And actually, I don't know whether he asked for their opinion or not, but they were more than willing to give it to him. Right? And what was their opinion, by the way? If you had to kind of put it in your own words. What was, what was his soldiers, what was their deal? Like, and, and it's not a good idea because like, hey, man, we're having a hard enough time here in our home turf. Saul's already chasing us down. We can't be running away from Saul and go into the Philistine. We can't do that. This is a bad idea. Uh, which, by the way, was it kind of a bad idea? And, and of course... Bad, because you know what God said. But if you didn't have what God said, what would you think about those guys' opinion? Sounds about right, honestly. That's pretty much right. But they were wrong. Uh, what, what do you think are some other sources of wisdom that David could have sought out at this time? That, say more. Totally agree. But He would have good reason. Maybe he would have been like, you know what? The spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? Like, God, I was anointed, and you know, I, I forgot about that, in that period with the Philistines and the, the showbread and the, all the stuff, and that was bad, but you know what? I know, I know. God anointed me to do this, to defend the people, after all, to be the king. So I know I should do this. But David doesn't even trust his own experience, we might say, or the things that he had learned in the past. He doesn't really rely on that to determine what he's going to do. He inquires of the Lord. Let's read a little bit more, and then I'm going to open it back up if anybody wants to make some observations. But we're going to try to attach these to us as we go along. Uh, Verse 6 says, Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul thinks, ha-ha, got him. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. And it would be easy now to say, well, I inquired of the Lord and he sent me into a trap. God sent me into a situation where now I'm trapped. Saul is coming against me. And you would think now it's like, all right, fighting men, your turn. Or you look internally and be like, all right, I need to kind of figure this thing out. What does David do? He said to Abiathar the priest... Bring the ephod here. Remember, we noted in chapter 21, the priest said, hey, that sword is behind the ephod. And David's like, don't care about the ephod. Give me the sword. This time, though, he said, bring me the ephod. Then David said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? He's inquiring of the Lord. He's asking the Lord, what's going to happen? will Saul come down just as your servant has heard. Oh Yahweh, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Bad news. That's not what you want when you inquire of the Lord. You wanted the no, I will strike his soldiers with blindness and I'll make the wheels run off of his chariots and I'll flood the river so he can't make it. It's just and it's a real simple, non-dramatic, he will come down. Yeah. Okay, well, David said, well, what about the other question? Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, "Mm -hmm, they will surrender you. It's like (laughs) Inquiring of God is not going well. Like, I'm in trouble, man. I go to a place where Saul's got me pinned down, trapped, and then every time I ask God what's going to happen, it's only bad news every time I ask. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit.
0: David stayed in
1: the wilderness, in the strongholds, and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. There's a number of points here where David could have said, no, no, we're not asking God's deal anymore. We're just going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. We're going to do whatever we think is best. But David had learned to trust God enough and he realized all of our wisdom, any of our wisdom, whether it's individuals that are the smartest or putting it all together, is faulty. Wisdom is found by inquiring of the Lord. This is what James, our Lord's brother, who wrote the book of James, said in in almost the very beginning. Remember that? He starts the book and he talks about the wilderness. Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Well, what do I do to get through the trials? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Don't try to ask everybody else. Inquire of the Lord. We've got to learn we're in the wilderness to be people who lean heavily on the Lord, inquiring of the Lord, seeking him in prayer, as was prayed earlier, seeking his will uh, that's revealed in Scripture. Inquiring of the Lord has to be our first and our last, and every question in between, what does God say I should do? Let me trust in that wisdom. Let me pause for a second. Thoughts, observations, comments about uh, this notion of when we're going through the wilderness, as we grow up through the wilderness, we've got to stay concentrated on inquiring of the Lord uh, for wisdom. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially when it seems like God's kind of setting you up, you know, when you keep following His wisdom, it keeps on going a bad way. Here and then here. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And let him deeper into this this challenging thing. Uh, by the way, I'll just make one note. I don't want to come to you. Just uh, in James, right? The beginning of the book says, "If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and He'll He'll give it." Then later in the book, it talks about the wisdom that God gives. It doesn't look very wise. In in James chapter 3, it talks about wisdom like gentleness and purity and peaceableness and reasonableness. Like, that's not a good idea. Out here where people are acting crazy, you can't live like that and survive. Well, you can if you're inquiring of the Lord and seeking out uh, the character of his wisdom. Hmm.
0: Yes.
1: That's an awesome point. And it's so important, right? This the wilderness is a classroom where we learn something, right? For those of you who are people who are really devoted to prayer, when did you learn to do that? When did you learn to really go to God in prayer constantly and consistently? Probably it was when things were not going so hot in your life. You were confused. You were bewildered. You didn't know how to deal with it. But you learned to inquire the Lord to seek him. All right, go ahead. Yeah, please. That's right. 100%. They win the little battle. They don't get captured. He gets more guys. It actually goes really well. And that's, a good, that, that's why these stories are valuable for us in Scripture because they're little reminders. Like, hey, if for us it's two sentences. For David, those are hours, days of, of stressful conversations with his men and sleepless nights and all that sort of thing. But because he stuck with the Lord, it's just a couple sentences. It's like it wasn't even a big deal looking back on it. And whenever we're in that crisis or fearful thing or time, whenever we're tempted to say, let me not inquire of the Lord, let me just seek out my own counsel or counsel of the world or counsel even of other. No, let me inquire of the Lord and trust in that. sure. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. Whatever confusion or questions we may have, we got to learn to inquire of the Lord, that that's where we look. All right, let's keep going the story and see what else, uh, what other lessons we learn um, here. So he leaves and he goes on and in uh, verse 15, it says, now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And David, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. Of course, this is a really poignant and sad note, and we're we're not featuring the story of David and Jonathan throughout our discussions as much. We've mentioned it a couple of times. But uh, as far as we can tell, I believe this is the last time when David and Jonathan would ever interact with each other. I may have forgotten one or missed one. You can correct me if if I'm wrong about that. But Jonathan's full intention and thought was, hey, man, you're going to be there. I'm going to be right by your side while you rule. Of course, that wouldn't come true. But at this time... What is it that's special about this moment between David and Jonathan? Remember, they have been best friends, brothers. David has to flee. Jonathan has to remain behind with his father and try to make sense of things uh, back there in, uh, in, the, in the palace or whatever you want to call it. Uh, what's special to you, though, about this particular scene? What's noteworthy to you? What stands out to you? What do you like about this scene between David and Jonathan? Jonathan. Yeah, and when you say he, you're talking about Jonathan, right? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, and I think this is true all the way through. When you look at David and Jonathan, David is certainly incredible, but Jonathan is honestly kind of the big brother in this relationship. I don't know who was older or if there was or whatever, but Jonathan is the one every time that's sort of um, strengthening, encouraging, and giving. And here we see an amazing degree of faith in Jonathan, that he has no doubt that David is going to rule. And there's a great sense of contentment, it seems like, on Jonathan's part. That's the shocking thing. This wasn't just like he was his buddy, excited about his friend. He was excited about David taking the spot that belonged to him to be king. And he was totally content because he believed in God. What else do you find noteworthy or striking or interesting about uh, Jonathan's interaction with David here? Yes. I love that too. I love that too. What a great line. He encouraged him in God. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. What else do you like about Jonathan and David here? Yeah. 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 I think that's amazing too because besides just the knowledge of the general situation, I think the implication is John's like, look, you're going to be king. I'm going to be right there by your side, and my dad knows. Like Jonathan was not hiding it from Saul where his allegiance really stood, where his faith was, you know, who he looked forward to becoming the next king. Perhaps there was some conversation where Saul would say, listen, one day when you're king, and John would say, dad, stop saying that. I've told you, we know. David's going to be king. I'm not going to be king. Stop saying that, boy. You're not supposed to believe it. Look, he, he was unafraid of his father. And actually, so there's an interesting thing. Jonathan, we know that he was willing to confront his father from other stories, and it, I think it's implied here. Uh, but also, the thing that's noteworthy to me is uh, verse 18. It says, David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. Well, what house was that? It was the house that was right there next to Saul. Jonathan could have said, you know what, Dad? You're a mess. You've tried to kill me you tried to kill David, you're the worst, I'm out of here. I'm going to go help David out in the wilderness. I'm going to foment a a rebellion, a coup d'etat, so that we can just go and seal the deal. Jonathan was loyal to uh, even his father, at least his responsibilities to his father. Here's my point. Jonathan's amazing, and that was probably too much about Jonathan, but there's there's a reason why I want us to emphasize this, and that is that when we're going through the wilderness, it's important that we remember Godly friends and influences are a most crucial source of strength. Godly friends and influences are a most crucial source of strength. Here David is out here in the wilderness, kind of recovering from some of his missteps, going to the Philistines and getting on. And Jonathan hears about him and he comes out to find him. By the way, be a Jonathan. Whenever you know somebody's going through a wilderness, don't just leave them out there to cry out for help. Go find them in where they are and help them out. Be there for them. But actually, it's not just Jonathan's. So, so the Jonathan is, you probably all have somebody in your mind that you're like, this is my, if I'm playing the David part in my life, then there's this Jonathan person who really means a lot to me. They help me, they encourage me, they encourage me in God. They're, they're all the things I want to be, and it's just great. But we shouldn't just have like those kind of uh, close friends that we rely on. We need to be open to any sort of godly influences that may come across our path. This takes us back to our very first discussion about the importance of humility, of lowliness of mind. 1 Samuel 25, David and his men have, have been continuing going throughout the wilderness and all this sort of thing. And David sends some of his men to the house of Nabal. They had helped Nabal and protected his flocks and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, they say, hey, you know, we've helped you out. Would you mind to uh, give us some of your, your uh, goods that you have? You know, it's sharing, you know, like maybe you could help us out. And the text in 1 Samuel 25, one noteworthy thing it says, I think it says, Nabal waited. He waited. It's like, you mean like a little pause in normal conversation? I think the reason why the text says that he waited uh, implies that he purposely was leaving them hanging for a little bit. And then whenever he responds, he says, you know, there are always people breaking away from their masters. And who is this David anyway? Who is David? What are you talking about? All the girls are singing the song. David has slain his 10,000s, and he's not breaking away. And besides that, he helped your men, and you're not willing to help. So the guys come back, and David gets hot. He says, saddle up, fellas, and he gets everybody ready, and they're going to go mow down Nabal, and everybody in his house, every male in his house is going to be destroyed. We're going to eradicate this guy's name from the earth. Now, look, Nabal was bad, but honestly, in that moment, David was just barely any better. So the servants of Nabal, they go to Abigail, Nabal's wife. They say, listen, you've got to do something. It's striking that they knew there was no point in, in reasoning with Nabal. He was so stubborn and such a fool that there would be no point in even bringing it up to him. So they go to his wife and they say, you've got to do something. So she gathers together all these goods, food and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it actually goes through a lot of the different descriptions of the food. And then she goes and she gives this beautiful, impassioned plea on behalf of her husband. And she admits that he's a piece of work. And really, he doesn't deserve your mercy, but please show mercy to him, all this kind of stuff. But notice in 1 Samuel 25, I do want to read David's response to uh, to Abigail after she intercedes. And um, beginning in verse, uh, let's start in verse 32. Here's what David said. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace, See, I have listened to you and granted your request. David didn't just look to his godly friends as a source of strength in the wilderness. He learned to just take any godly influence. This woman he had never met before, didn't know at all. And I do want to underscore a woman, which in that culture, for a man, a commander, someone who is anointed to be king, to basically bend his will to a woman. What's wrong with you, man? Aren't you a man after all? But David didn't care. Somebody he knew, somebody he just met. Male, female, old, young, didn't matter to David. He saw her godliness, and he took that influence as a source of strength. Matter of fact, what does David say there when he says to Abigail, what, what does he say got her to him? I don't know if that's even a good question, but how does he say that she got there to come to him? God. Now, I'll tell you this. I, as far as I can tell, when you read 1 Samuel 25, there's no God said, Abigail, go to David but she was a godly woman who was doing a godly thing. And David saw that as God himself sending her as a messenger to prevent him from doing wrong. We need to learn to see God's work in our lives in the wilderness through the godly friends and influences that we happen upon. And some will be people that are lifelong friends. Some are people we just barely even meet or come across. Let me give you an example of somebody that that, uh, was this way for me. And I don't I don't know. I don't know what what happened with their story. I was studying in a coffee shop one time, and uh, there was this voice behind me. The person said, "Hey, excuse me." So I turned, and it's this lady. She she's not presenting physically in a in a particularly feminine way, and it seems pretty purposeful with her haircut and, and things of that nature. And she said, "Hey, is that a Bible?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah." And she was like, "I've been reading the Bible." I was like, "Great. What have you been reading about? Let's talk." And so we sat there and chatted for a minute. And she said, "Listen, um, what do you think about?" And she started asking me some questions about human sexuality. And I said, "Well," and I, I said, "This is what the Bible teaches about that. There's some hard things because of questions in our culture, but here's what the Bible says about it. And I think the Bible comes from God. I don't think it's just people that wrote the Bible. So I think this is God's will on the Bible uh, on human sexuality." She said, "Yeah." She said, "Actually, I've been kind of thinking some of that stuff." She's like, "Look, I gotta go. I'm, you know, on the clock." do um, you think we can meet again? I said, sure. Like, uh, Is it okay if my wife comes? She's like, yeah, that'd be great. So a few days later, we meet again. And we sit down and we start talking. And uh, pretty quickly, she opens up to us that she was in a same-sex relationship and had been for over a decade with uh, her partner. They had gone to various kinds of religious groups and churches. She actually had like, taught a Bible study at the LGBTQIA affirming church that she was a part of. And um, and, but, but the problem was she was exploring what the Bible taught about homosexuality. And the leader of the church pulled her aside and said, hey, oh, you're, you're teaching the Bible like it's the actual rules. Like you're exploring it like we've got to really figure it out. We actually don't believe that in this church. This is what the lady said. This isn't me being disrespectful. Like, this is just what they, uh, what they said. So the, our, our new friend said, okay, uh, that's, this isn't the place for me then. And so went on. Anyway, so as they were reading the Bible, they were becoming convinced, even though they had been taught some things, that people had said, hey, actually, the Bible is fine with a same sex relationship as long as it's a committed relationship and not just illicit, uh, you know, sort of um, affairs, you know. And that's what she had been taught from some different uh, people or whatever. I don't know. Anyhow, they started questioning that. And that's why she was asking us all these questions What do you think about this? What do you think about that? So I'm giving the answers. No. Really, any kind of relationship outside of one man and one woman within the confines of marriage, any sexual relationship is against God's will. It's wrong. It's sinful. And of course, that's really hard, I know, because that's the kind of relationship you're in. She's like, well, actually, she said, for the past two years, we've been studying these things, and we've refrained from any physical intimacy between the two of us because we're not sure if we're allowed to have any kind of sexual relationship. You hear what this like? Now I know at first it's like, hey, duh, same-sex relations not okay. Okay, well, pretend that you one lived in a world that said it was okay, and number two got taught that people said the Bible said it was okay, and so you actually had been convinced that it was okay, and then you started questioning whether or not it was okay. Questioning. You weren't sure that it was wrong, but you weren't sure that it was right anymore. And you've been with this person who you've devoted your life with for over a decade, and you say since I'm not sure that it's right, I'm going to refrain from it. That's incredible. It was a a really strange thing. I don't know if her phone got shot. We were very friendly after that. We met once or twice more. I don't know what happened with her story. I don't know where she went. I'd like to think that eventually she repented of her sins and came to Christ fully and all those kinds of things. But I do know this. That woman was an incredibly godly influence on my life. Because it made me question, how many things do I say, I'm not sure if this is okay, but I think it's probably fine with God. And shame on me that I would think that kind of way. When we're out here in the wilderness, we need to draw from the strength of our close friends and companions, our brethren, as well as the godly influence, and whatever measure of godliness, however God is using them uh, to help us to grow up and become more what we ought to be. All right, that was too much on that, but... There you go. Let's do another lesson here. Uh, 1 Samuel 26. Keith brought us to our attention to this just a second ago. 1 Samuel 24 and 26 are occasions when David could have ended it with Saul and taken the throne. But he chose not to. Now, on the occasion of 1 Samuel 26, David uh, sneaks into the camp with one of his soldiers where Saul is sleeping. And beginning in verse 8, it says, Then Abishai, that's the soldier, said to David, Today... God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Everybody's sleeping. Now therefore, please, let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that's at his head and the jug of water, and let's go. So, you've been on the run for so long. Saul is not only being hateful towards you, he's destroying Israel. He's putting so much of their resources, of the military, not into fighting against the Philistines, for instance, their actual enemies, but into chasing down you, one of of his soldiers, one of the people who's fighting for God and for God's will and all that sort of thing. Besides that, you've had these occasions of all this bad thing that's been going on. You've had these occasions of opportunity to take Saul's life. And it wouldn't just help you, it would help everybody, remember, because he's destroying the whole nation and stuff. If you had asked David really early on, hey, you think... It's okay to take the life of the king. Surely he'd say, no. You can't lift your hand up against the Lord's anointed. That's wrong. Man, as time went on, as things got worse in Israel, the economy got messed up, the borders were not being defended, the Philistines weren't being attacked, and just he's getting tired. And now two times I've had this opportunity. Wouldn't God want me to? I mean, I know before I would have always said it's wrong to attack the Lord's anointed. But circumstances are changing, man. Circumstances are changing. I don't know that it's so wrong anymore. That would have been an easy thing to think. But here David reaffirmed his commitment and reminds us of the critical lesson that circumstances are always changing. But what's right in God's eyes always stays the same. And I know this is one of those, duh, always obey God no matter what. But here's the problem. Duh, until we're out there trying to do it. And you say, you really shouldn't be angry. You know, The wrath of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. But then you're driving, and there's some bozo who cuts you off in traffic. You're on the job, and this person just keeps on, keeps on. This Your boss keeps on doing the same stuff and messing up what you're doing and, and cutting off your opportunities to... And the anger comes up. Your kids start acting away, or your parents start acting away, and you think, I know I'm not supposed to be angry, but surely this circumstance is probably okay. In general, bad. God, I know, well, I know God said bad, but in this circumstance, things are different now. You know? Or besides something like that, related to something like anger or lust or, or whatever, what about just generationally? We say, well, look, I know this was bad. Back to our friend, actually. Yeah, 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 there was a time where God forbade same-sex relations. But now things have changed in society and people are more understanding and stuff has just changed. So it's not the same rule anymore. That's why people say that kind of stuff and lots of other reasons. And we may say, ooh, I would never believe that. But are there other things like that? You say, well, yeah, I mean, I know the early church, blah, 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 blah. This is how they live. This is what God wanted them to do. But things are different now. Well, yeah, things are different now, but what god said isn't different now Circumstances are always changing But what's right in god's eyes Is always the same that's david's point here. He says hey I don't care that saul's lying right here prone and that his spear is right there And that we could just ram it straight through him and be done with this thing. I don't care That circumstance hasn't changed the fact that he's the lord's anointed the Lord said he's the one, and I'm not supposed to stretch out my hand and take vengeance on him. He actually says more or less the same thing a little later in chapter 26. Read a little more of the conversation. And I want to open this up for you all to make whatever observations you'd like. Starting in verse 17, uh, so David uh, goes away from the, uh, the camp, and then he, he has the stuff to show, hey, I was in there, and I could have killed you. He calls out, wakes him up, kind of gets on the guy who should have been protecting Saul. In verse 17, it says, then Saul recognized David's voice, and he said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, the king. He also said, why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king. He keeps calling my Lord, the king, my Lord, because those circumstances have changed. He still was the king. God said he was. So he was. Please listen to the words of his servant. If Yahweh has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. David saying, I'm still trying to serve the Lord. If I've done anything wrong, let's deal with that. But I'm just trying to do what's right. Please, you do the same. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David. For I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. And David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today. In other words, there were circumstances that allowed me to take out my own revenge if I wanted to. But I refused to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all my distress. David says, I want to be rewarded. I don't want to reward myself by manipulating things, and when circumstances change, I'm trusting in the Lord to reward me for my faithfulness. Circumstances are always changing in the world. What God wants always stays the same. Thoughts or comments on this and ways we need to embrace this? Challenges that we face in this? How the wilderness helps us to be reminded of this uh, this concept? Anything you want to say about this? Mm. Yeah. 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 That's an awesome point. I hadn't thought about that. I love that. Yeah. Cool. Other thoughts, observations, or just applications, things we need to think about with this concept. Yeah. That's a great point. Actually, this kind of argument, whenever I think, sometimes if uh, if someone is violating passages like Romans thirteen or First Peter two in terms of their attitude toward the government, uh, we'll say, "Hey, listen, you got to honor the king, you got to submit to the government." This is kind of a riff off of what you're saying. Um, but someone will say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but I mean, they lived under Caesars. We're in a democracy, so we don't have to do that, basically, you know, or at least, we don't have to, like, hey. There was no democracy contingency there, okay? Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You still got to do Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. You've got to be respectful, okay? you got to submit to the government, whether you like them or not. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, we, we, we've got to make sure that we're not. Because to your point, whenever we let circumstances dictate our behaviors rather than God's will, what we're really saying is, I'm pretty smart, and I'm going to figure out how to take care of myself and deal with myself, rather than saying, I'm going to trust in the Lord. If there's anything the wilderness supposed to teach us, it's to trust in the Lord. And this is one of the main expressions of it here and then here. Yeah. No idea. Maybe he grew up more. Do you have an idea? That's a good point. Yeah. Maybe. I've missed it too. I I, I think it's interesting in, in that way. Yeah. So I, I don't this is a, I don't this is a definite I don't know. Uh that's my that's my real answer. My backup answer is says so he cut off part of his robe. I don't know how much he cut off, you know. I don't know what that may have symbolized to cut off the robe and I wonder if that may have been part of it. To take the spear in the jug was like, Hey, just come get your stuff. I messed you up last time, you know. Maybe that's it. I don't really know though. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Circumstances are not dictating his decisions, his valuation of himself, any of that stuff. He's really seeking the Lord more than anything else, which is awesome. This is really hard. This is really hard. I mean, I already mentioned the anger thing, but y'all know uh, there's so many different convictions we may come to. Probably a lot of you who've been doing this longer than some of the rest of us, you've seen people come to some conviction on some doctrinal point point. And then it gets hard to hold to that conviction. And then a person says, I believe this. And then it gets hard. They get in a wilderness on that conviction. They say, I'm reevaluating what I believe about that. It's like, yeah, I bet you are, because it's hard now. I'll just say, the next time that I am reevaluating some conviction, it better be in a a vacuum of difficulty. You know, it's good for us to reexamine our convictions. We need to make sure that what we believe is what God actually says. And it's just because I believed it once. We could all raise our hand on many things. We're like, I was wrong and I got messed up. I needed to reevaluate that and come to a true conclusion. But if I'm doing it in the moment when circumstances are leading me to it, I need to say, no, I really, now's not the time to be reevaluating. Because probably what I'm really trying to do is not try to figure out what God says, but I'm trying to figure out if I can bend and twist and figure out how to make what God says do what would make me feel good about what's going on. Circumstances are always changing, especially in the wilderness. What God says is right is always the same. All right. Um, chapter 30 is my favorite, and we're pretty much out of time here. We've only got like a few minutes. So that's a bummer. You need to read chapter 30, though. Here's what happens. In First Samuel chapter 30, David and his men have their families and all their goods uh, taken, and it's a horrifying thing. They weep, verse 4 says, until... They didn't have strength to weep anymore. That's deep, deep sorrow that they're in. The men actually decide that they're going to stone David. Well, they don't decide it, but they talk about it. So you can see just they're in dire straits, and everybody's upset. So David and his men, they get together, and they're going to take off to to get the women and children and recover their livestock, whatever they can do, if they're even still alive. So they take off and they go. By the way, uh, back to our earlier point, verse 8 says, David, of course inquired of the Lord to determine what he should do, so he takes off. Well, they happen upon a fellow in the wilderness. There's nothing said in the text about them knowing that he would have the information that could help him, but they bring the guy to David. He's very hungry. He's been ill. uh, He hasn't eaten in days, and so they give him food, and actually, I do want to note this in the text specifically because I think it's really uh, special. If you look in verse um, 12, well, verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. After verses 11 and 12, after giving, and I think, I think we're supposed to see this chronologically, after he's given food, he's given water. By the way, notice it was the good food. It wasn't just, hey, we got any that old crusty bread? He didn't say that. He said, Hey, get some of those fig cakes. And uh, yeah, 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 raisins too. Bring that over here. And get this guy some good water. He's, this guy's messed up. They gave him good stuff. An Egyptian, by the way. If you're an Israelite, what's the worst thing you could be besides a Philistine? An Egyptian. Our enslavers. You know, like we hate those guys. We don't. But here they take this Egyptian, help him out, feed him. For apparently no good reason at all. David then says, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? Before he knew anything about this guy, he's helping him. David, if you're one of David's you think, man, we've got important stuff here. We're trying to get our women and children back, and they could be getting killed any second. What are we doing helping this guy? Instead of just thinking about his problems and his family or getting stoned by his men, David and his men see this man who's in need, a man who, foreigner, an enemy even, let's help him out. Now, as it turns out, this guy was one of the servants of the people who had raided um, Ziklag where their families were, and he knew what had happened. David says, Okay, will you take us to the people? Now this guy, not knowing much about David, or maybe just being concerned, say, Well, if you don't kill me, then sure, like I'll help you. And David says, Okay, no problem. And so they go. They end up routing the people, getting all their women and children back. And by the way, they didn't just leave them. They could have just said, we're not going to bother with them. This is too hard. We've got bigger things. No, they they get them and they bring them back, and it's this beautiful thing. Now, along the way, some of the men of David's company were too exhausted to continue on, which makes sense. They've been soldiers fighting, running, exhausted in their sorrow, all these things they get left behind. Well, after they win the battle, they come back. And in verse 21, it says, When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, those who had also been left at the Brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. He doesn't berate them for not going to the battle. He doesn't uh, say, oh, y'all are able to get up and greet us, but you couldn't go up and fight. He doesn't do anything like that. He greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. except every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. You don't get to enjoy this victory with us. We won this. Y'all were bums. You stayed behind. You don't get any of it. You get your wife and your kids. And also, we don't want you anymore. Get out of here. Depart. And David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us, And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And then the text comments, So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance to Israel uh, to this day. David says, listen, and I love actually the way he talks to these worthless and wicked men. What does he call them? My brothers. My brothers. He shows an endearing spirit toward these wicked and worthless men. As he's exhorting them, no, nobody's going to listen to you jokers on this. Whoever did anything, if you stayed with the baggage, if you went to the battle, we have an equal share in this battle, this victory. All of us. David shares it. And it actually goes even further than that. The last paragraph of the chapter talks about how David gave gifts to every city where uh, he had gone, and people that didn't even know him really. Like, he just sent gifts out from this victory he's sharing it here's my point whenever you're going through a wilderness when you're going through a hard time think about the last time that happened for you you may be one right now who do you tend to think about the most in the wilderness who are you concentrated on and focused on the most in the wilderness and it should be god and all that stuff but wait what me i'm focused on myself i got to survive I've got to protect myself. I've got to take care of myself. These people are bothering me. Why aren't they helping me? Why doesn't anybody know what to say to fix this problem, to comfort me, to help me, to do whatever it is? It's so easy to become self-consumed in the wilderness. But what David teaches us here in uh, in this story is that we have to know that the only way through the wilderness is to crush self-seeking with an others-oriented lifestyle. We've got to develop that other's orientation to not be thinking about how can I get something? How does it to me? I'm sad. I feel bad. I know you do. And that's not, that's not wrong to acknowledge that. By the way, David acknowledges that a lot. But at the end of the day, in terms of the way he was living, he was thinking about others. He was thinking about others. He goes to get these vulnerable men and women. He could have said, you know what? You guys are terrible. Y'all want to stone me? I'll be fine. I'm going to go get my wife and kids, and the rest of y'all, good luck. He could have abandoned his men who were trying to kill him, but no, he goes with them. He could have, he could have said, you're an Egyptian. Get out of here. I don't want your kind with me. But he embraces this man almost as one of his own men. He uh, does all this stuff. He fights against people who want to be selfish. He says, no, we're going to help these, these guys who are too tired. We're not going to beat them up for that. He was others-oriented. Whenever we're going through the wilderness, we've got to grow up to become people who are others-oriented and not just think about ourselves and whine about all the problems we have. Lament your problems. Pray your fears and your tears and all the things that you have. But then when you go out and live, do for others as you would have it done for you rather than becoming consumed with yourself. And the end result of this is you get to come to Jerusalem. After all this stuff happens, Saul, of course, dies. And in 2 Samuel chapter, the first few chapters of 2 Samuel talk about David uh, sort of pulling everything together in Israel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he takes the city of Jerusalem, which is kind of the symbolic period where his uh, wilderness was over. He came out of the wilderness and into the city of peace. Because he didn't trust his own wisdom, he inquired of the Lord. He drew strength from godly friends and influences. He didn't let circumstances dictate the way that he lived. He did what was right in God's eyes, no matter what. And all along the way, he wasn't thinking about himself, but he was thinking about others. If we'll learn to live that way, we can get through the wilderness. Not just get through it. We can grow up through the wilderness so we can become like our Lord and Savior, who himself went through the wilderness for us to bring us to his city of peace. And if we'll follow in his footsteps, we'll be right there. Thanks for your good attention. We'll, uh...
0: Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation, or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's Word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast, or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.